Talking Supply Chain. In each episode, top supply chain industry professionals and the nation's top thought leaders join host Brian Strait and share their unique insights to help supply chain managers stay one step ahead of their competition. This is Talking Supply Chain. Hello, and welcome to Talking Supply Chain. I'm your host, Brian Strait, and today we are talking negotiations. Negotiations have traditionally been a little like playing poker. You sit across the table from someone looking for that tell that might give you the edge. It's very business-like, very structured. But negotiations are also about preparation. And our, as our guests today will tell you, maybe a little more human than we all think. Mark and Melanie Trowbridge are a husband and wife team that we asked to pen an article for Supply Chain Management Review's May issue. That article, The Psych of Negotiations, Using Human Factors to Obtain Superior Outcomes, is now available online to our subscribers at scmr.com. So if you're not a subscriber and you want to read the article, go subscribe. You can do that at scmr.com. But in the article, Mark and Melanie walked Mark and Melanie, I should say, walked readers through four categories of techniques in using human factors more effectively in negotiations. Those are be prepared, getting beyond positions by understanding the supplier's needs, appreciating your counterparty's personality traits as well as your own reading and sending non-spoken body language, and finally, using interrogatives to appropriately shift the other party's paradigm. Uh, Mark and Melanie, I want to welcome you both to our podcast today. Um, want to start, if we could ask, tell you guys, tell you guys can tell us a little bit about each of you. Um, Mark, if you don't mind starting, maybe. Our audience may be familiar with some of your past work, as you've done a number of articles and webinars for Peerless Media, um, Supply Chain Management Review's parent company in the past, but I was wondering if you might like, let us know a little bit about your background regarding procurement negotiations. Sure. Um, Brian, thanks for having me and Melanie on. Um, my background has been way too many years in the field of procurement. Um, I've had real corporate jobs, lest people think that this is just a consultant talking. I've had uh, jobs with the largest manufacturer of pleasure craft in the world, the world's largest airlines currently. And then also the um, a series of banks leading to a job being in charge of three quarters of Bank of America's strategic sourcing and all of its contracts management worldwide. And um, I sort of left on a pinnacle where my team had helped uh, Bank of America book um, over a quarter of a billion dollars in savings. And with that, in my ledger sheet, I went off and uh, helped form strategic procurement solutions. And um, that's been about 20 years. And our firm has been very privileged to work with some very large customers. And we, a lot of what we do is uh, do training um, and organizational efficiency uh, improvements. And the training um, in the field of negotiations is, a, is an important part of our practice. Yep. So, I mean, you, a lot of experience there in, in procurement and, and industry experience, too, I think, which is really good. Um, you know, there's, there's plenty of consultants out there who have never really worked in the industry, um, but you've got that both that blend of both there, um, which is nice. Um, Melanie, you know, you're the other part of this team that, that did this article for us, um, but you come at this from a different perspective because you're a medical doctor um, with, an, with an expertise in uh, medicine, psychiatry and psychology. Is that correct? That is, yep. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your fields of practice and how you know you kind of came about this and, and, and approached this? Well, thanks for having me on. This is really fun. Um, it's great because, uh, you know, a psychiatrist is a medical doctor first who then decides to uh, specialize further in the field of psychiatry. So really my training and practice 
affords me the opportunity to conduct what we call psychotherapy. You know, it, it, often we call that counseling, but also I can prescribe medications and uh, other medical treatments with populations that include both children and adults. But what's really fun too is uh, I get to work with a lot of groups and agencies. Um, you know, the tremendous privilege is that I get to work with others to appreciate their particular, not just their mental health, but their physical health too. And then further, you know, I can then consider how their particular biology, psychology, uh, social and spiritual interactions link together to produce their particular unique package. And the great part about the whole thing is that, you know, we're so really very flexible and plastic and our ability to change even up to our last breath here on this earth is just really dynamic. So to sit across from somebody and to share their life experiences and help them um, kind of negotiate that and work towards positive change is just really what drives me. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, there's probably a whole lot of professional uh, procurement professionals, right, have gotten through a negotiation and thought, I need some medication now to, to satisfy this. <laughs> That's kind of not what we're talking about here, obviously. So no. um, we'll, we'll get to how that background for you, I think, in a little bit, how that background kind of translates to the negotiating table right. here. Um, but Mark, I want to turn to you for a minute. Um, as, as you mentioned, you've got a lot of experience in industry as well, um, and you've worked with a lot of uh, corporate procurement teams over the years. Um, when we were talking about, I, I mentioned in the beginning, um, how, how negotiates can be a little more human, right? Can, can you kind of explain some of the benefits by, you know, what, what you guys talked about in the article, identifying human factors such as needs and how you can bring those into the negotiation process and why? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's been interesting to observe the procurement profession and the typical procurement professional's role, whether it be a category leader, a sourcing leader, or even senior level buyers. Um, how that has has morphed and evolved over the years, you know, as new technology tools and, you know, and even even uh, sourcing tools like um, auctions, which in, in reality are a technology enabled negotiation for commoditized expenditures, how those have really taken over their their world. And yet what what the most skilled procurement leaders really um most of them recognize is that negotiations is still the golden key to success in the field of procurement and supply chain management. And, uh, and yet far too many groups, corporate um, procurement professionals go into negotiations. They might have several scheduled during a day and they're going in with very little preparation time, you know, in the, the workshops and webinars that, and, uh, that I teach and my colleagues teach, you know, we emphasize the fact that 75% of the time spent in the six phases of the negotiation process that are laid out in the article, 75% um, of that time should be your preparation. And if you go in unprepared, first of all, I guarantee the supplier on the other side of the table or in the other parts of the room, that supplier's team, they are more prepared than the average procurement team. Yeah. And yet... Yeah by doing that preparation. And part of that is, is working on a psychology. How are we going to present what we would like to achieve? How are we going to help go through a change dynamic during the, during the discussions to get the supplier to the point where, where they can really provide value? So that's just, a, that's just a short version of it. Yeah. Are you seeing um, any diminishment of, of the importance of that as, 
you know, online platforms, AI c comes into the fat, into the situation here. I mean, I, there's plenty of, uh, there's a bunch of systems out there now that promise to streamline this whole process, right? And just, hey, here's the best price, here's the best price and, and match it up together in these mm -hmm. processes. But I know these negotiations still go on, right? So it, 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 is technology changing this in any way? It, um, it is impacting it, but I will just flat out say the, the procurement personnel who think that you can, that an auction is going to replace negotiations are completely missing the boat. Um, in fact, statistics show that um, a third of companies who enter an opening bid into an auction never, never sharpen their pencil during the auction event, and they still end up winning it quite often. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, and all it's doing is putting machines in the middle of what should be a human dynamic. Um, a great example, I was on the phone yesterday in a call with an executive sales leader for a company, and he had previously been with um, ODP, you know, Office Depot, in the office supply world. And I shared with him a, um, a story from way back where I had done some advanced research before my team. Uh, at the time, I was with the fifth largest bank holding company in the country, not Bank of America, a predecessor. And uh, we were predominant on the western side of the U.S., and I had read in their annual report, the office supply company's annual report, that their goal at that time, this was a long time ago, was to expand to become truly nationwide. And the area that they were not covering was the Pacific Northwest, where our bank had branches. And we changed our strategy that the following morning, my team did. And rather than offering Office Depot the portion of the country they did cover at some very competitive prices, yet leaving the Pacific Northwest in the hands of their one of their competitors who was going to ratchet up the prices. Instead, I told the Office Depot people right at the beginning of the meeting, hey, if we give you the Pacific Northwest, can you be up and running on your ability to uh, distribute office supplies there? And if you do that, um, will you sell to us in the Pacific Northwest, Washington, Oregon, and uh, Idaho and Western Mo Montana? Will you sell to us at... Uh, at your cost for the first three years of the contract. All the light bulbs went on over their heads. They made a conference call to their, uh, their the chairman of the board, got it approved, and we got office supplies at cost in the Pacific Northwest, and we got a great savings in the rest of the world. That was just advanced research, and it was taking time to understand the needs of the other people in the room. We could have beat up on them with a hammer to try and lower the bid price but that wasn't how we got to work, to a winning solution. Yeah, they they, they say um, supply chain, logistics, all, all that. It's it's still about people, right? It's still about interaction and, and people. I think um, you know procurement's no different. It's 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 about people. It's about relationships. It's about interactions. Um, Melanie, I wanted to switch to you. Um, you know, in in psychology, you know, you guys you talk about personality traits using an acronym called OCEAN. And mm -hmm. I didn't know what that was until I read the article when you guys sent it in. Um, but it was interesting. So I'm sure most of our readers are probably not familiar with that acronym either. Can you explain what the five elements in OCEAN actually are and why business people, um, why it helps them look inwardly and outwardly when it gets to the negotiation and the counterparties they're dealing with? You bet. Uh, OCEAN is a, um, it's actually kind of a user-friendly acronym model for understanding um, the main dimensions of personality. 
So, you know, experts and research, there's a lot of it behind this kind of acronym of OCEAN, but really bottom line is that they found the traits of OCEAN, which we'll talk about in just a second, to be really universal. So, you know, not a particular area of the country or even in this country at all, but just really globally. So first of all, we got to realize it's not a typology system. There's no specific types of personalities identified. Instead, it really helps us understand the dimensions that uh, represent qualities that all of us, all people possess in varying degrees or amounts. So let's go for it. So ocean refers to and measures the degree to which you are. O is for open. C, conscientiousness. E, extroverted. A, agreeable. And N, neurotic, or we often use the term anxious. So for instance, you might think it would be really great to have a team full of those that were higher in openness, you know, those types of folks who are curious, creative, um, you know, receptive to change and tolerant, and that's all great. Uh, But if you have a room full of those or a meeting full of those, what happens to the other polarized lower quality of openness, which also has benefit because they're more down to earth, uh, often you know, kind of pragmatic or risk averse, um, more conservative and straightforward. And so both having both of those um, meets that critical thinking or or ability uh, to weigh pros and cons and risks and benefits. Um, Another one, let's just take, I don't know, maybe extroversion. Um, We often see in a lot of articles, really great to be extroverted, you know, outgoing, sociable, friendly, talkative, energetic, most of those folks tend to be more inclined to leadership, and that's great. But again, in a meeting full of uh, folks, if everybody's in more of that leadership style, what happens to those that need to be lower, maybe in the extroversion, where there's more of a reserved, relaxed, serious, or team-oriented approach? Again, both ends of those spectrums uh, need to be represented well to, uh, again, understand those pros and cons and risks and benefits. So I would ask, you know, is there a perfect score for any of us? And my answer would be probably no. But, you know, are there better scores than others in certain kinds of environments? Yeah. And uh, that's where kind of the magic happens in understanding ourselves. And, and when you put together your negotiating team or you're, you're dealing with the, the other party, right, if, you, if what you might know about them, um, it is looking for different people that fall in different areas of this um, ocean um, scores important? Does it does that matter when putting a team together? I mean, do you do you want to try to build a team that maybe has a, some different variety on it, if you will? Absolutely. You know, again, if you've got too much of a good thing, those pros can be taken to the extreme, and I would argue that pros taken to the extreme can really become our cons. Too much of a good thing, too many cooks in the kitchen can kind of spoil that broth. If we don't have that critical thinking where we're being pushed and pulled in a healthy way by those on the other end, uh, encouraging us to think more critically, um, you know, I don't think that's, that's as healthy as we could be. And we really can't talk much about personality without talking about how it's used in, in those relationships, in the, that team building. And undoubtedly, really, the most important relationship that we have is with ourselves. Um, You know, you often hear terms like intrapersonal versus interpersonal. Well, that intrapersonal 
relationship or communication that we have with ourselves, you know, how we chat with ourselves and um, that internal dialogue or that self-concept that we have about ourselves, perceptions, you know, that we hold, all of those have really great impact, not only about ourselves, but then we take that information and we communicate with others. So if we can better communicate with ourselves, we sure can take action to appropriately address our own emotions, you know, expand our empathy for other people. And then that allows us to really um, kind of advance our analytical skills and expand our decision-making skills. And then we can take that relationship that we have with ourselves into a more healthy relationship with other folks. Yeah. I, I think I, I think back to my own experience that I've not done much negotiation, but I did, I've hired a lot of people over the years of my career and whatnot. And, and one of the things I always try to do, and, and I may have been doing this myself anyway, I just didn't know what it was. Right. And, and I, I tried to identify what I thought I did well and what I didn't do well and tried to hire people that did those things that I didn't do well. Yeah. Great. Right? So it's, is that, is that kind of, that's kind of, uh, kind of the approach here, right? I mean, I didn't, yeah. When putting your team together. So and Brian, um, this, yes. is this is Mark. Yeah. Um, you know, as you guys have already picked up, Melanie's a lot smarter than me. And <laughs> that's how I ended up in the procurement trades. But uh, when we're pra- when we're practically in myself and my clients are putting together teams of people to go into negotiations, we absolutely are looking for attributes of the other parties that we can utilize in putting together our strategy and making sure we have the right people on on the team. So making sure you have the right team, um, but also, you know, if you if you identify, say, uh, one of the leaders, a vice president for for the sales organization who's coming, who is known to be a, uh, you know, ready, fire, aim type of a person, you know, doesn't like getting dragged down into details, wants to be the one who's the leader and making that that hero and making that decision for a team. Do not start off the negotiations with, you know, with three hours of discussing the legal terminology and the indemnification clause of that, because that person's eyes are going to roll back in their head. Suddenly they're going to say, oh, I have to take this phone call and they're going to leave the conference room. Make sure that you stack the negotiations so that it's addressing their their style of interaction, their style of decision making. And so. Um, you know, what Melanie is saying is is absolutely critical. And if we could have insight into the personalities of those people on the other side of the of the uh, negotiation, that's very valuable. And especially yeah. if it's negotiations with an existing supplier, guess what? We've met those people. We've worked with them for the last two or three years of a contract term. And so we have a certain amount of information about them and we can observe some of their their processes, and we can make sure that we're adjusting to their style of interaction, whether or not we can see all all of the ocean traits. Those are just things that are great cues that Melanie's providing that we can be looking at, whether it, but for ourselves as well as for others. Yeah, yeah, and and I think uh, you know that kind of uh, kind of ties in a little bit with where I think we're going to go next here, um, somewhat. I mean, but it's understanding your understanding your parties. Um, you know, their strengths, weaknesses, what you can learn from that. Um, but in the article, one of the things you talked about, uh, Mark, one of the things that was put in there was a quote from Peter Drucker. Um, and I think this is something, I mean, this quote is probably something that maybe we have all heard in our lives at some in some variation. But uh, what Drucker said was that the most important thing in communications is hearing what isn't said, right? Uh, it, it's, it's, it's the 
things that you're interpreting and, and whatnot. Um, so you included with, with that in that section of the article, you put a, a matrix of body language meanings that I think mm -hmm. illustrated this really well. Um, but you also told a story as part of that article and, and, and that section as well. And it was, um, you were involved in a negotiation with a tire manufacturing client, I think several years ago. Um, and I, it was a really interesting story about something you picked up on in the negotiation. And I was hoping maybe you could relate that to our audience today. Sure. Yeah, I was, um, um, I and several other people from our company were working on a project that took, I think around 20 million, 15, $20 million a year out of, uh, indirect spending for one of the top five tire manufacturers in the world at the time. And uh, my client, who was uh, had the confusing title that he was the director of indirect procurement, um, and uh, he, um, he was uh, prepared. We had gone through negotiation training, and we were prepared to go in and negotiate what are called lumper services, or were called back in the day. And those were interesting services, and basically... Um, basically on their loading dock, they would hire people to, uh, to load railroad cars full of tires or, uh, or trucks full of, of tires. And the uh, lumper company was being paid um, by the man hour for this service. Well, if you know anything about procurement and incentives, do not pay anybody by the hour to do anything. Um, <laughs> that, that never works out well. And so we were prepared to go in and renegotiate and we wanted to negotiate flat rates for certain size railroad cars, um, um, full truckloads and less than truckload types of, um, of loading, but incentivize that in that manner and also get some cost savings out of it. And uh, we went into the negotiations and the, the, uh, the president and the executive, executive vice president of sales for, the, uh, for this company had flown in on a private jet, which tells you a little bit about the lumper business. <laughs> um, and the, uh, and uh, they had flown in to uh, the nearby airport and uh, come in for the meeting. And so we went into the meeting and we, and we went in, did the introductions. They were not too pleased that a, a pesky consultant was in the room with their client, but they, they were adapting well to that. But I noticed that they were very stressed. And the president of the company was, looked like he had an Irish background and his face was red and you could see veins in his forehead sort of bulging out as my client started to go down the pathway we had agreed upon for you know asking about profitability margins and things like that. And, uh, and he was very uncomfortable. And so was the executive vice president who kept looking at him and then looking back at my client. So I, I sort of interrupted. And I said, you know, could you share a little bit about, uh, it looks like you're uncomfortable about the conversation. Can you share a little bit about this? Because we really view this as an opportunity to discover on both sides and make this a better relationship moving forward. And he's, and they shared that they had, they had um, flown in early and they had met with the, the VP of accounting for the company to discuss a significant amount of invoices that were in arrears, I think was, you know, a quarter of a million dollars of invoices that were past 90 days overdue. And the, the VP of, um, of accounting had basically told them, you know, just let it, we'll work through it. Don't worry about it. Just keep on doing business with us. <laughs> and um, yeah. so I, at that point, um, my client said, okay, well, I'll, I'll work on getting that straightened out, but let's continue with our discussion. And I said, I said to him, I said, no, let's, um, if it's all right, could when is the next time you're going to be in this area? Could you be back next week? 
And they said that they could. And I said, well, let's wait until next week and then let's resume our discussion and we'll, we'll work on this other problem in the meantime. And the next week, my client handed them a check for nearly the full amount that was overdue. And then we went on and had a successful negotiation. But yeah. that negotiation, they would not have been nearly as on open or, or uh, willing to change um, if we hadn't taken care of that. And that was just a pure body language type of a clue there. Yeah. And, and that was interesting. I found, I mean, from their perspective, right, from, from that lumper company's perspective, I, I can understand that. Why would I want to cut a deal with this company when, mm-hmm. you know, they owe me a bunch of money, right? What What's the same even going to get in my money in any way whatsoever? So I understand that. And, and that makes sense. And But I, I thought it was interesting that you sat there and, and you just looked the way they were sitting, the way they were behaving. You, you said it's getting red in the face a little bit and could see the veins um, that they were not comfortable with the situation. Um, and, and you didn't know that's what that right. was, but you picked up on that, right? And, and, you, and you followed up and said, hey, well, what's going on here? That's right. And But the, the subtle clue for those listening to the podcast who are involved in professional negotiations is that we do far, far less of our negotiations today um, in person. And if you can do it, you can pick up body language clues in person that you can't pick up on a Zoom call or a, or a Teams call. Yeah. Because um, yeah. the camera isn't always paying, pointing the right direction or people can mute their, their, the video on their screen or do things like that. Um, they can mute the audio also and have a side conversation that you can't hear. You can't yeah. do that in person. Okay. And, so, but, and yet so much of our negotiations have become either machine audio uh, machine deployed, or um, they're farther and farther removed from that in-person um, situation where you can see how they're reacting. You can feel the tension in the room. Um, those yeah. things are so important, and and uh, you know, and I know I know that Melanie looks for those types of things in all aspects of her her work, and they're they're great clues when when she has those. Yeah, and 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 they are, and and pick up about it. We do it every day in our own conversations, I think, and but we probably don't necessarily think about it when we move it into the business environment, you know, um, kind of thing. And and I think there's another way. I mean, you mentioned, you know, hey, you know, a lot more is being done online, maybe video, maybe not video, and, and maybe making missing some of those things. But another way you can kind of get to some of that stuff is through questions, right? And and Melanie, I wanted to ask you about um, a section of the article that you talked about the interrogatives and, or questions that you use can use to empower communications and negotiations. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that's kind of a way to kind of get a similar way to get to where, you know, Mark was talking there in, in a little bit too. So can you, can you talk a little bit about why asking important questions and to have those interactions and make them more meaningful, how that helps and, and approaches to kind of doing that? Yes, sure. Well, asking uh, a lot of questions, actually, not just a few, but a lot, actually unlocks uh, a couple things. Uh, two big ones are learning and that interpersonal uh, bonding, you know, between folks. And so the way it, it's not just the question itself, but it's the really the way that we frame those questions and choose to answer uh, our counterpart and. Um, all that can really influence the outcome of the conversation. So, for instance, the type of question, you know, open-ended question, the tone uh, with which we use, the sequence and the framing, all that matters and it deserves some, uh, you know, thought process to it. Um, you know, we talk about uh, folks who've given us uh, 
you know, wise counsel over the years and, you know, 80 plus years or so ago, uh, Dale Carnegie gave us some good advice. He said, hey, be a good listener and ask questions that the other person will enjoy answering. Mm -hmm. And we've followed up with that. And decades of research really suggests that interpersonal conversations have two goals. One, to get learning, to get more information. And two, impression management. It's that liking or interpersonal bonding. And so, you know, in, in further, uh, you know, looking into that, research shows that asking questions, open-ended questions, strategically achieves both. Whether or not that communication style is cooperative, whether it's competitive or it's a combination of both. Yeah. And, and that's, it, it's interesting as you, you talk about that, because, you know, as I think, uh, you know, I'm a trained journalist, right? I went to school for journalism, um, have a degree in that, and I've spent years in, in, the, in the trade. And mm -hmm. one of the things that they always teach us is when you're interviewing someone, don't ask yes or no questions. Mm -hmm. Because that's going to do nothing for you to write your story. Because if you ask a yes or no question, you're going to get a yes or no answer. Um, and then it's going to require another follow-up and another follow-up and another follow-up. You have to keep doing it that way. But if you ask open-ended questions, you get two things out of it. And I think, I think, I mean, you guys haven't said this specifically, but I think this can apply here to help you learn in a negotiation is that, you know, one, the party has to kind of answer the question, right? And it has to go beyond a yes or a no. Mm -hmm. And I, you talk a little bit about that in the article as well. Um, mm -hmm. Some of those types of questions, some examples in there. But in, in the journalism trade, one of the things you learned is that people want to fill dead, dead air as well. Mm -hmm. If you ask an open-ended question and then there's no, nobody speaking, oftentimes the subject will keep speaking, mm -hmm. right? Because they don't want to not speak and just have everybody sitting there in silence. And you learn a lot from those, from that impromptu speaking, if you will. Um, and I imagine it's probably the same thing in negotiations too. I mean, the more people speak, the more you learn as well. Um, which, right. which leads me, I think, to my next question for you, Melanie, um, which is some of the styles of questioning that you have. And one of the ones you described is motivational interviewing. Yes. Um, can you explain what that is and how does that work? Yeah, sure. Um, well, let's start with really what motivational interviewing is. It's actually a, a counseling method that is had been designed to help people make different choices um, by digging deep and finding their own internal motivation to change their behavior. And it started out really in a medical arena and now some of the techniques have found their way into other areas and other arenas, such as business and education. I particularly, in, in my own life, uh, use it more days than not. I find it an extremely effective way of uh, talking to people about change. So why do I do this? Well, you know, I use it in my personal life, my professional life, because um, although we might be experts in particular areas, Everybody is their own expert on their own lives. So if we can come at it from more of an interaction where, where it's uh, less of a peer differential and more of a shared conversation, people feel more comfortable in answering those kind of open-ended questions. So our article points to the use of those open-ended questions and this type of, of question style that motivational interviewing um, can teach us can allow for goal setting and negotiation in what we call a, a change plan of action. So we're looking for change, right? So by asking questions in four particular categories, 
we can elicit or more better understand our counterparts' commitment for change. You know, where are they at in this uh, arena? So here are the four categories. What's the disadvantage of your status quo right now? Second one is, uh, what are the advantages of change? Third one, what is the current optimism or their current climate of optimism of change? And the last one, what's their intention to change? So let me give you an example. One example that I find really kind of nicely disarming and productive for many of of different audiences that I work with, I actually call it my uh, value ruler. So here here we go. Here's here's kind of a question. Uh, On a scale of zero to 10, how important is it for you and your company to, let's say, um, automate your purchase transactions? And they'll answer. And I'll respond, uh, well, why are you at a four and not a two? Mm -hmm. And they'll answer and I'll respond, what would it take for you to move from a four to a six? Now, if you follow that process, look what this technique allows us to identify. Immediately, it allows us to identify a positive discrepancy between their current situation and where they'd like to be. It kind of removes those negatives because, you know, a four is not exactly great positive. But what it does is it moves it into a positive and allows us to focus in on the discrepancy and the core of that motivation towards change to the positive. So if we further that process, we can then follow this up by asking or elaborating even further on this discrepancy and summarizing it back to them and reflecting it, and then building their confidence in their ability to actually change. And finally, hopefully, uh, focus in on their strengths and past experiences for uh, of their success and how that success can play into future successes. Yeah. So again, sounds like a, a long-winded way to, to move into change, but boy, we practice it just a little bit. It becomes... Um, really pretty user-friendly, and it allows them to be an expert in their own lives, their own area, and uh, see what positives, uh, you know, can, can be, um, you know, uh, appreciated in the very near future. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Um, we've just got a couple minutes left. Um, I wanted to give each of you a chance. So I'm, I'm sure our listeners listening to this um, are, are interested in this. I mean, I found the article and, and the topic very interesting honestly it's one of the more interesting ones i've read in in quite a while um and and i think it's if you if you you understand it i think it also is something it's really helpful too i mean i think that's what makes it so interesting is that this is really useful advice um that actually can improve things and so much of time we hear things um about hey do this do that do that and, and it doesn't really do a whole lot in your organization i think this you know, following these kind of practices actually will do an awful lot and can lead to millions of dollars in savings for some companies, mm-hmm. um, I'm sure. But um, in the last few minutes, I want to give each of you a chance um, to talk to our listeners a little bit who may be asking, you know, how, how do they incorporate this stuff? Um, so, you know, I, I guess the question is, you know, what would you coach them to do um, in incorporating human factors into the negotiation processes for themselves? Um, I don't, Melanie, you want to start and we'll follow up, follow up with Mark? Sure. I I, kind of actually want to have Mark take the lion's share of this. But um, again, I'm going to I'm going to finish with what I started, which is uh, what a privilege. I think if we can take the idea of of 
that privilege that we have to be able to um, be present in the opportunity to sit with somebody, regardless of what arena that is, whether it's in my arena of you know psychology or psychiatry or the arena of negotiation in business, to sit across from someone or a group of someone's and talk with them about this exciting opportunity for change. And what can we ourselves offer to them, uh, which is really a win-win, um, and expressing their need for change, bring what they have, what their successes are, and then further their success um, gives us inherent intrinsic value, but it also brings intrinsic value to them. And then that intrinsic value uh, translates into, uh, you know, external value too with dollar signs. So it, for me and what I'm looking at in the, in the field of uh, business with this negotiation and taking those human factors, I see nothing but positives. When we look at one another and uh, seek the best, um, help understand ourselves better, which then incorporates to understanding our counterparts better um, and providing uh, positives all the way around. Very good. Um, and, and I'll just add at, at sort of a practical level, don't, don't underestimate the value of doing your upfront research and understanding the human needs and the human perspectives and the corporate needs and corporate perspectives of the other party. Um, it doesn't matter whether you are in a, a, uh, you know, a strong negotiation position, a competitive, what would be known as a competitive negotiation style, or you're in a collaborative type of negotiations where both parties need to need to concede things in order to get a winning um, agreement in place. No matter what, the time that that negotiators spend in researching the other party and understanding their drivers and then during the, the six-phase negotiation process that is laid out in the article, making sure that not only have we done our preparation work up front with all available information that we can gather, but after we go past the, the introduction and the positioning statements that always occur in a negotiation that can, and can be worded very, very uh, strategically, that we go into a discovery mode and ask the right questions and discover where the other party is and begin that negotiation process. And, um, you know, going along with the Dale Carnegie quote that Melanie shared, um, you know, people love to talk about themselves, especially salespeople. I mean, it's sort of an inherent bent that they would love to tell about their story, their war stories, and they love to talk about themselves and their company. Let them do that. I mean, I was always guided that God gave us two ears and one mouth and we should use them proportionally. That holds true in negotiations too. Let the other person talk, the other person talk um, within, within boundaries and within guidelines that you've set up and you can really help to guide that, that interaction to a winning solution. If we don't listen, um, if we don't take time to understand where the other party is coming from, we can just push things as far as we can, and we're going to hit a wall, and that's going to that's going to end the negotiation. So it's worth the extra time and effort to do it right. And you know, for example, I'm going to be training a um, a corporate procurement group for a large technology firm in a few weeks, um, and we do a two day workshop on advanced procurement negotiations and. 
Um, so we talked through these types of practices and, you know, even interrogatives and also how to respond to tough questions in a strategic way. But we do a lot in, in regards to role-playing exercises in those sessions. And we teach, it's amazing the amount of improvement that people, um, that people go through just during a short time period as they understand these concepts and they can put them in practice. So that's all I had to say on that topic. Uh, great discussion, guys. Um, Melanie and Mark, I want to thank you for your time today. Thank um, you. Unfortunately for the audience, we're out of time. Uh, it, was, it was a pleasure to speak with both of you. And I, I hope you, the audience, found this conversation insightful and can help lead you guys to some better procurement negotiations going forward. Uh, if you want more on this topic, you can go to scmr.com and search for the full article titled the, the Psych of Negotiations, Using Human Factors to Attain Superior Outcomes. Um, I'm sure Mark would appreciate it. You can also connect with him on LinkedIn. He is the principal of Strategic Procurement Solutions. And I am sure that if you connect with him and you need help, I'm sure he'd be willing to help you out as well. So um, as always, thank you all for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Strait, and this has been Talking Supply Chain. Talking Supply Chain is produced by Supply Chain Management Review and Peerless Media. You can find it on scmr.com, supplychain247.com, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. For more information on this topic or to sign up for our weekly newsletter, a print or a digital subscription to our publication, visit scmr.com. We hope you will join us for our next episode. For Supply Chain Management Review, I'm Brian Strait, and thank you for listening.